this is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OTA and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Hello, and welcome to the My OT Journey podcast. Your host for the show today will be myself, Alex Connolly, a second year graduate student with VCU's OTD program in Richmond, Virginia. And myself, David Lagouvi, a second year CODA student at HCC Coleman College for Health Science in Houston, Texas. We have the pleasure of interviewing Diane Simons, who is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and a staunch advocate for the field of occupational therapy. Diane Simmons is also currently serving as assistant chair for the Department of Occupational Therapy at VCU, a fellow with the American Occupational Therapy Association, and helps to spearhead the collaboration between Art for the Journey and a local senior assisted living residency in the Richmond area to implement the Opening Minds Through Art program. Diane received a Bachelor's of Arts in Art from Virginia Tech, Go Hokies, a master's in OT from Virginia Commonwealth University, go Rams, and a doctorate in education from the University of Virginia. And I guess for solidarity's sake, I'll say go Wahoos. She has also been involved with numerous academic publications and grants and has been serving as a representative from Virginia to the American Occupational Therapy Association Representative Assembly since 2011. She has also been serving as the Virginia Occupational Therapy Association consultant to the board since 2013 and sat on the board of the Virginia Occupational Therapy Association from 2011 to 2013. All right, so hello, Diane. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Hope you both are too. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, I know from being a student in your class how involved you've been from within the field of occupational therapy and I've witnessed your passion for the field. So I was wondering, can you explain what drew you to OT? Wow. Um, It was actually meeting an OT in Florida who um, originally drew me to the field. She was working with adolescents with psychosocial issues, and she used a lot of art activities with them. And um, because I had been an art major, um, I was very interested in that. I'd also worked as a medical illustrator. Um, And when my life changed and I became separated and eventually divorced, I um, became interested and looked at OT as a a possible second career. Um, I actually drove up to the University of Florida, which was less than an hour away, and they uh, at that time would not allow you to pursue a bachelor's degree, and that's what they offered uh, if you already had a bachelor's degree. So I called the two programs that were closest to Florida, and they were the UNC in North Carolina and VCU in Virginia. And I happened to get Dr. Gary Kielhofner as the Director of Graduate Admissions when I made the call to VCU. And over the course of about an hour and a half telephone call, he made me realize that OT was the only possible um, career choice to be made. <laughs> yes. That, that's really cool. Uh, they said with Dr. Kielhofner, who um, we've learned about recently in our, our theory class that you taught us, um, who is the creator of the model of human occupation. And uh, one, of, one of the theories that I like probably the best, actually. Um, but 
Can you tell me uh, a little bit any more more detail about what he said that really convinced you um, to come to VCU? Um, you know, Gary was one of these people who was extremely charismatic, and he was a firm believer um, in OT and uh, just so genuine about it. He had been a um, a conscientious objector during the Vietnam era. He'd actually gone to seminary for a while and thought about being a Catholic priest. And so he uh, was firmly against the war and against killing. And um, so he um, refused to, um, you know, the, the draft. And, um, and so he became a conscientious objector. And that, that, that required that he do alternative service. And he ended up doing alternative service, um, working with clients with um, intellectual disabilities and working with OTs. And he, um, as a result of that, saw that OTs were doing incredible work. He was you know, quite a bit of an erudite himself. He was very well read and so he questioned the OTs about what they were doing and why and um, what he told us later was that he could see that they could do the good work but they couldn't explain what they were doing or why they were doing that work and that's what led him into wanting to pursue OT as a career and um, and help OTs learn how to explain the wonderful work that they did. Um, so he went on to get a master's degree from the University of Southern California and studied under Mary Riley. And, um, and so all of this was part of the conversation that he and I had um, when I came to Richmond to look at the VCU program. And I was so completely impressed with um, the devotion, his devotion and, um, and his commitment to the profession that I really made up my mind that I wanted to study with him. I wanted to learn from him. And I uh, went to an interview immediately after that down at UNC. And I still to this day can't tell you who it was that I interviewed with there. But she said to me, so you just interviewed with Gary Kielhoffner? And I said, yes. And she said, what did he say? And I told her and I said, I, you know, it was very inspiring. And she said, well, if it were me, I would study with him. <laughs> so yes. she, she talked me out of going to USC. So I came to Virginia <laughs> and studied with Gary. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, wow, that is, that is amazing. Such a... Um, such an honor to meet Dr. Gary Kaufner and all the people you studied with. It was just amazing. Um, can I ask you, um, can you explain how your own journey and uh, the collaborative efforts with influential occupational therapists such as Dr. Gary Kaufner, um, Dr. Claudia Allen, Delma Sumshian, and Dr. Elizabeth Logan, how did that impact? your view for client-centered practice, MOHO, and any other theories that you got from them? Well, I obviously cut my teeth on MOHO um, studying with Gary. He taught my theory class. And, um, and at that time, now, I was in school in 1982, so 
the the um, Moho articles came out in AJOT in 1980, so it was two years after that. He was a new professor at VCU. The first textbook didn't on Moho didn't come out until 1985, so he was literally typing his ideas on a typewriter in his office and um, taking them to the local kinko store to be copied and that's what we were using and we were studying and then we studied all of a lot of articles that he had read that had influenced him as well not just his work um so um so i really learned about moho as the ideas were developing as they were evolving and um and he frequently talked to us and I was in a I was in a graduate master's class of 16 students, so that it was a small group, and um, and we gave him a lot of feedback. Um, I then, because I had such an interest in theory, I went on to um, learn from other theoreticians like Claudia Allen um, uh, and the uh, cognitive disabilities model, which I didn't actually learned to totally respect until many years later. Um, and then Thelma, Thelma Sumption is the, the developer of client-centered practice in Canada. She had been president of, of the Canadian OT Association, and I reached her by telephone to look for a qualitative research text that a member of her uh, faculty had, had authored but had since retired. And, um, and when I got her on the phone, I knew her by reputation very well. And I asked her if she might ever be willing to teach a course in client-centered practice for post-professional um, masters and OTD students in Canada. And um, when she said she would, I arranged a, um, a study abroad course to Canada for, I think there were, Six or eight of us that went on that on that trip to um, to actually Richmond, <laughs> um, Canada, and um, and it was a it was an absolutely fabulous experience. But I have been strongly influenced by the ideas that came out of Canada and client-centered practice, and I still don't feel that OT, that OT in the U.S. fully understands it to the full extent with the way that it's been written about in Canada. Um, and um, Elizabeth Locon is she's a gerontologist and she's the developer of the OMA program. So she hasn't really interested. Uh, I mean, impacted me in terms of my OT career, but she has influenced me on um, being able to work with uh, the geriatric population and particularly clients with dementia. Um, so she's really taught me so much about what art can do for um, for people, even in fairly late stages dementia, but certainly in the early and mid stages of dementia. Oh wow! Yes, wow! It's it's amazing how many uh, theorists and leaders in the field that you actually learned directly from and worked with. It's amazing to be in one of your classes. Yeah. yeah, I I kind of hit the time in my career when theory was really big and being presented at AOTA, and so I had the chance to get to know Jeanette Scotty and Sally Schultz and the, and the, um, and talk with them about the occupational adaptation model and 
um, Michael Lawama with the development of the Kawa model, and Renee Taylor, who was Gary's wife, um, as she developed the intentional relationship model. So because I'm because I love theory, and I was mm-hmm. just kind of kind of in the right place at the right time when theory was evolving and developing in these places, I was able to study and learn directly from the authors of these um, OT models. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really cool. Um, do you think that these experiences influence you to develop a focus, focus in any subspecialty of OT in particular? Uh, and eventually become a professor? Um, well, I'm, you know, Gary certainly was an influence on me. I, I, um, I always wanted to work in mental health. That was the area that drew me to OT. Um, and I loved working with adolescents, and that was the, predominantly what I did in my career. Because of that, the model was just such a wonderful fit that I started applying it immediately. Um, but then when I was exposed to um, some other ideas, like some of the ideas um, uh, like um, relative mastery from uh, occupational adaptation and the whole idea of looking at efficiency, effectiveness, and satisfaction and generating an occupational gestalt, and um, uh, those ideas kind of just expanded what I knew about theory and because I, I always practice with a real theoretically grounded way with, with the clients that I worked with. Um, and I actually began teaching, um, I think I was only maybe four years out of, out of school. Um, and, um, and because I was working in mental health and I was working with adolescents, they needed someone to teach the adolescent psychosocial course to the undergraduate students. At that time, there were bachelor students. And, um, so they asked me if I would be willing to teach that class, and um, I thought it was a wonderful opportunity. So I started teaching as an adjunct, and I actually adjuncted um, in that course and in the theory course for about seven years before I um, was asked to apply for one of the full-time positions that was coming available. Wow, Okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here, and I just was kind of curious as uh, what you thought was one of the biggest obstacles to succeeding in occupational therapy today. Wow, that's um, that's a, that's an interesting question, Alex. I um, I have I have my own biases about um, um, practitioners, and and I feel really strongly that to practice true client centered practice um, that's occupation-based and occupation-focused, that it's essential for, um, for therapists themselves to have wonderful communication skills and really, really enjoy talking to people about their lives and what matters most to them and, and what gives them a sense of meaning and purpose because it's really generating that, you know, that interest that helps you work with them to, to um, define life-changing intervention. And, um, and I think it also takes having a really good repertoire of occupations and an openness to try and um, a lot of different ways to approach 
um, helping people accomplish their goals. So, um, so it's it's sort of a combination. But I think I, I think because my bias is probably towards more creativity. I think what made my practice really effective was um, having a having an open mind and really generating a lot of creative um, approaches or ways to be able to to generate um, intervention um, methods and techniques. Uh, going with that thought, um, what are the most uh, important character character traits? Of a successful OT. Oh wow, David, that's um, you know. I need a loaded question, I, but yeah, but but I think um, for you know for an OT practitioner, and I'm talking about OTRs and OTAs, um, mm-hmm. it's really a passion for wanting to help people, for really genuinely caring, a true desire to be able to help people. Um, and and having a willingness to want to go to do everything that you can to help people accomplish what they would like to accomplish um, and so when I've done some research in the past with um, therapists around client-centered practice what separated the outstanding therapist from the ones that you know were good therapists but not necessarily you know outstanding was that the the therapists that truly practiced in a client-centered way would do everything that they could if that meant that they had to run the errands to be able to pick up additional supplies or even spend money out of their own pocket or other kinds of things they made sure that their clients um, got just the very best of their energy and enthusiasm to help them. Wow, yes, that's amazing. Well, I want to thank you, Diane, for sharing that rich history so far. It was very interesting to hear all of that. Um, And I know from being a student in your class, um, I can attest to that passion that I think has been trickling down through educators, it seems like, you know, through Gary, now through you, and you know, through me, I, I remember one of the first classes that I had with the program at VCU, um, you dressed up as a, one of the prominent figures in, in OT history, and I just thought that, like, wow, this teacher has, has really got character to, to dress up in a graduate program. This showed kind of a, a testament to your personality and, and the passion that you had for the field. Um, so I just thought that was a really cool thing that I had the chance to experience. Uh, well, I have to give credit to that to my husband actually because he went to a, um, a a small liberal arts college here in Virginia and he still keeps contact with his professors that he had when he was there and you know and he's late 60s now so um, so that was 40 some years ago but he had a particular professor um, who taught Civil War history and he came in and one day and he bent over behind his desk and turned around and when he came when he turned back around he was dressed up as Abraham Lincoln and gave the Gettysburg address and um, and you know it it made such an impact on him that still to this day you know it's just is one of his outstanding college memories that he had he he was a history major and loved you know the, the to learn about the Civil War and absolutely loved this professor but um, 
So I thought, oh, it would be neat to dress up as Elder Clark Flagel <laughs> and, <laughs> and really kind of communicate to the to the students how special it was. So um, yeah. we uh, OT was birthed at a time with um, incredible people, with with nurses and doctors and architects and social workers and you know and artists art teachers it was just uh, we were born in an interprofessional crucible and um and it's what made us special and what continues to make us special in my mind no definitely i think that the field is in need of good educators and i think that's really going to help propel the the field um to expand and you know um be more inviting to different, you know, people that are considering occupational therapy. So um, I'm not having really set what education or what track I'd like to pursue in my uh, educational career at this point. But um, I do want to let the listeners know that unfortunately um, you are about to retire after a very long and successful <laughs> career. Isn't that correct? Oh no. Yep. Only only have a couple more months to go. <laughs> couple more months. Well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Well, it's, you know, it is a very strange time in our country's history and a very, time, you know, after 25 years of an academic career, it's an awfully unusual time to um, to be retiring. I just finished teaching the introduction to OT um, class to the new 48, 48 new uh, OTD students. And... Um, and I, you know, I, they were a wonderful group of students, and I'm really glad that I got a chance to meet one last group of students before I retired. One last batch. I know I'm thankful for um, having had you in the class, and as you talked about, you know, uh, continuing those relationships, you know, hopefully that will still be something that we can do later on down the road. But I did want to know uh, what your vision is uh, in terms of the future for occupational therapy. Um, how do you see the field growing or changing? Um, what is your hope for how the field will change? Um, maybe you can possibly discuss the IPEC class that you are affiliated with and the role of interprofessional collaboration. Um, wow, the future of OT. Um, I, you know. A few years back, I um, I had the pleasure of meeting some graduates of our program that had been out of OT school for over 50 years, and um, and one um, took my hand and asked me if I would sit down with her and talk to her about OT education now, and and I did, and she she looked at me and she smiled and she said the heart of OT is still there, and that makes me very, very happy. <laughs> and um, it was just beautiful because, she, I mean, she didn't go back as far as, as um, rehabilitation aids, but she she learned about OT and uh, Aura Ruggles, you know, idea that you reach for the heart as well as the hands. And, um, and so I think OT has, will change in the future. There's all kinds of potential. I mean, we're seeing it already in what's happened with COVID with using telehealth that will, I think, have the potential to expand our reach um, uh, over some of the geographical limitations that we've had before. Um, and, um, and there's certainly, you know, going to be a variety of opportunities through um, 
assistive technologies and um, and 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 working with older adults and um, that will change at, you know as as the as the profession ages I mean technology will influence and make a difference in how we we contact people um, uh, interestingly I when we had to switch over to COVID um, different ways of doing groups I was teaching the first or uh, uh, field work one for the psychosocial for the second year students in the spring and so half of the groups got to be face-to-face -face, and the other half had to be sort of simulated um, over over zoom and only with fellow students rather than with clients because we could no longer go to the facilities where we were delivering services and um, and one of the groups that was being done was a cooking group with uh, people with serious mental illness who were um, limited in their knowledge of how, how to prepare food for themselves and so they were eating a lot of prepared foods you know instant foods that kind of thing and they were afraid of knives and chopping and those kinds of things so the students worked with them and and teaching them knife safety and um, skills and also introducing them to some adaptive pieces of equipment um, like finger shields that could be used for chopping to prevent you know a, a slip and, and cutting yourself and that developed a level of confidence in the in the clients that was um, you know far different than than anything they had experienced but one of the one of the activities the whole group was designed based upon what the clients had asked that they wanted to learn and they wanted to learn about cooking meat because they said none of them really knew how to cook meat and and so one of the one of the meals that was cooked was tacos and they used that for showing how to cook meat and making sure that the meat was cooked all the way through so it wasn't red in the middle or you know pink in the middle and um, so that was one of the groups that had to be switched to being done virtually and um, and so the student very cleverly um, took her laptop over to the stove tilted the screen and um, and was talking to the screen and saying now see how this area here it's a little larger piece look what happens if I chop it in half can you see the pink that's in the middle of this that's what you would want to make sure is all gone so it's important to break up any of these clumps of of meat and make sure that all of your meat is fully cooked and has turned brown and um, and when we were processing it afterwards about the the experience of her teaching the group I said you know um, if you had done this in person you would never have thought to be able to use zoom and to broadcast to the to the clients but everybody could not have have gathered around that pan and seen what you were showing there and if you had had a laptop in the in the kitchen at the facility you could have done this exact same thing with having a with you know having a zoom session set up and and using or showing them what you were doing even though it was face to face so I think we're going to find that some of the some of the techniques that we've had to develop by by doing things on a virtual basis will expand the opportunity for ways that we might do um, things whether it's teaching or actually with our clients with groups in the future so um, I think technology is going to be a 
an important component to um, to practice in the future. And um, so let me. The other thing that you asked about was a little bit about IPEC. I have been a strong proponent of interprofessional education since um, since before it became an official class. Um, I think. 2015 at least, or maybe 14, we started some experiments with trying to bring some groups together. And 2016 was the first IPEC class that we had. Um, and so we did not have, um, no, let's see, yeah, it was just, so 15 was the trial. 16 was the first year that we had uh, OTD students and we made it a required part of our curriculum. And so, um, I I am very very strong supporter of OT students learning with other healthcare professionals, whether it's pharmacists or nurses or PTs or our dentists and dental hygienists. That uh, people that you might think might not be a typical kind of person that OTs work with. But you can discover ways that we can work together. We've worked with the dentist with um, around issues of um, oral um, sensitivities and you know um, um, and working with clients with with um, disabilities who um, are frightened of of going to the dentist. I, I, there's just all kinds of ways that that professions can work together. I just finished on Friday a program called CIRCA, uh, C-I-R-C-A-A, and it was a program that was offered by the Virginia Geriatric Education Center, and, um, and, it, and it stands for Creating Interprofessional Readiness for Working with Complex and Aging Adults. And when I found out about the program, it was a, it was a program that ran from September to June, um, once a month, and, uh, and we had three retreats uh, during that time as well. It was for practitioners from all around the state, um, either academics um, or clinicians. And, um, and so we worked together as interprofessional teams to learn about working um, um, in the area of gerontology. And so we all brought our respective um, expertise to working together and learning together and it was a really fabulous experience. I wanted to do it because I had worked with adolescents for all of my clinical career, a little bit with adults but mostly with adolescents and um, and I was getting interested in OMA and working with older adults with dementia and I knew that I didn't have a very deep knowledge base when it came to working with older adults. So I decided to do this program in my last year before I retired so I could learn about working with um, older adults and I learned so much about um, creating age-friendly healthcare environments. Um, so, um, I, you know, that just that just shows you there's a, a, a learning interprofessionally. It was amazing. I, you know, when you put a team together of of a nurse and a pharmacist and a PT and an OT and a social worker, what we could all bring to understanding a case was amazing. And I want yeah. students to have some of those same experiences. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you said all that and, and connected all the dots with 
you know, the impact of COVID-19 and technology and, you know, the, the interprofessional care team and how that's all so intertwined and related. It's, um, you know, how drastically this, this virus has impacted everything we do. It's really kind of changing how we practice. And, you know, as OTs, we're, we're known to be flexible and adaptable. So we're kind of, you know, taking it all in stride. And, um, you know, we've all kind of had changes. I know speaking with David, he's also, you know, spoken about how his, his program has been impacted by um, this virus and um, kind of put on standstill for, for some um, aspects of the program. Um, but I think that uh, at this point we're going to switch gears again and, and talk about the involvement with Art for the Journey and Opening Minds Through Art. Okay. Yeah. So I'd like to introduce um, Art for the Journey and uh, OMA, Opening Minds Through Art. So Art for the Journey is a research-based nonprofit organization that promotes the health and well-being of young children and adults through creative expression and art-based programs. The organization works with various populations such as women in prison and um, people with dementia to overcome barriers and transform lives through creative art. So they've adopted the OMA training program style into one of their programs, which is um, a failure-free art program developed by Dr. Elizabeth uh, Lika Lukin, who works with Scripps Gerontology at Miami University in Ohio. So the OMA program is the recipient of many awards and recognitions and was incorporated into the curriculum for OTD students at VCU recently. So I have a short audio clip that Dr. Logan sent to me to help describe what OMA is, and it provides a first-hand account from an artist that worked with the Dublin Medical School at Ohio University. Most of us are here and we don't want to be, but when the young people come, then we're very happy, very happy. I just feel like I get so much like energizing for my soul just being with the residents. This program is OMA, it's called Opening Minds Through Art, and it's an awesome program that pairs uh, residents here at Mayfair Village with dementia, Alzheimer's, or other neurocognitive disorders with us student volunteers on a weekly basis to lead them through no-fail art projects. Yes, it was very interesting. It had to do with creativity and art and camaraderie among all of us there. Dealing with a condition like dementia, you're gonna have like your resident not remember everything fully, but I feel like a part of this program that makes it positive is that Despite the fact that she doesn't remember working with me, we are still able to connect every time and have just as much fun. Oh, I love it because they're young and they come in with open attitudes and fresh opinions and uh, good ways to look at things. So I feel as though I can learn so much for them by listening to them. So definitely as a future um, physician, it will help me just um, have that perspective that I need when I work with my future patients who may suffer from similar conditions. We've learned more about empathy and compassion and how we can bring that into medicine in the future, which has been incredible.
So there you have a little quick and dirty summary of what the OMA program entails. Uh, that was actually a YouTube video clip that was converted to an audio clip. So if you want to check out the actual video, we'll leave the link in the show notes there for you. Give you another chance to um, see a video of some in-person video videos and give you another chance to have your heartstrings pulled a little bit. Um, I know if you're considering a specialization in gerontology as an OT or OTA practitioner, uh, I think it's certainly a really great um, idea. I feel like our older population is, is kind of neglected in our culture, and I think it'd be a great way to give back to them as well as have a really rewarding experience for yourself. Okay, so Diane, I wanted to know how did um, VCU become involved with the OMA program? And uh, can you give me a background on the creator of the program, Dr. Dr. Elizabeth Lee Loken? Sure. Um, I can do both of those things. So um, I, when, um, I was teaching the Fieldwork 1 psychosocial course several years ago, I think four or five years ago, and I had a master's student, two master's students, who actually um, participated in the OMA program at St. Mary's Woods here in Richmond. Um, as volunteers. So they volunteered through an organization called Volunteer RVA, and they just found it as an opportunity. And, um, and so they actually shared one of the projects that um, had been used in OMA with the clients at a clubhouse that we were working at, our, our providing uh, Fieldwork One experience at. And um, and so it interested me. And then when we began um, to look for potential partners in the community, um, as as a OT faculty, we knew that the third year students would be completing capstones during their last semester, and it would be the pretty much the sole focus of their of their last semester in the program after they had completed their two fieldwork twos. And um, and so we were encouraged to um, find people in the community with whom we may be able to partner and um, and generate some relationships that could um, support some capstone students. So I reached out to um, the uh, principles for Art for the Journey that um, that uh, offer OMA, um, um, Mr. Mark Hareholzer and Cindy Pollen and Jamie Wigington, and we met for coffee at Starbucks to talk about their program and whether they might be interested in having a, a Department of OT capstone student, and they were very interested in doing that. So that eventually led to the first student that was uh, last year, actually, um, Ingrid Durstein, and she um, completed her capstone with them. And um, the year before, when we were preparing, because you do the planning like a full year before the actual um, engagement in the process, um, we uh, felt that she should get trained as an, as an OMA um, um, facilitator. And um, I didn't feel that I could be a faculty advisor to her with doing that unless I had the training as well. So, um, so 
So I paid for my own training and I became an OMA facilitator. It was a hybrid program from um, OMA at uh, Scripps Institute at, at Miami University. And, um, and then uh, Art for the Journey has become a train, train the trainers site and so they are able to offer the practicum and so I um, Ingrid and I both became um, certified uh, facilitators for OMA I loved the program I fell in love with it immediately when I was learning about it it is so um, beautifully designed and and as both an artist and as an OT for many years I was so impressed by it. Um, Lika has done something amazing in the way that she's looked at these art projects. Um, mm -hmm. She has divided up the continuum of process and product because normally for people with dementia that are working with someone like a, you know, a, a rec therapist or someone else that uh, might be working at the facility, an activity person. They do simple processes that result in simple products. Um, but, um, but Lika separated those and, and developed a process of, of creating abstract art pieces that are created in layers. So it's a series of simple layers, lay, uh, one at a time, laid over top of each other, creating a complex piece of, of abstract art that are beautiful. They're, they're absolutely beautiful and frameable pieces, and there's an art show that's at the end of it. And so um, as an OT who has taught activity analysis and breaking things down, it blew my mind that, that it had never dawned on me to be able to do something like to break down a process into layered steps to create a complex product. And um, so I, um, I have since then um, been the advisor, um, the faculty mentor for um, two capstone students and now I have my third who is doing it this summer because of uh, a grad three student because of COVID and she could not go out to do her field work too and so she's doing she's also at, at Art for the Journey um, and I have another one that is um, coming up in the next class so, um, so that will be my fourth um, uh, capstone student um, working with Art for the Journey. Now, um, none of them to this point have done OMA except the current student that I that just graduated. She she developed a program for veterans, but she also served as an OMA facilitator at the St. Francis home, which is where uh, we arranged for the grad one students to have. Um, volunteer experience this past spring. So uh, so every student has gotten trained as OMA, but that hasn't been the focus of their capstone. Yeah, that's actually where I got the idea from to do this podcast because I thought it was uh, such a cool idea and it was something that was incorporated into our curriculum and our therapeutic process class. Um, so I was actually one of the um, volunteers that did the volunteer training um, and I had actually switched groups. So I was in the second group and luckily got in there before COVID-19 um, hit, hit Virginia and had the, uh, the group three be canceled. So I actually was lucky enough to get in there and 
um, have some firsthand experience to see what this program is about and to work hands-on with um, older adults that are suffering from various diagnoses. Um, so I, I just thought it was a really cool experience and um, in part two of the episode that we'll be working on here shortly, we're going to be um, hopefully working with Erin Oakley, who is the grad student who just finished her capstone, and also incorporating um, Cindy Pollan, um, who was mentioned earlier, that's associated with um, Art for the Journey. Um, so, so yeah, I just, uh, I just think it's a really awesome program that I think can be incorporated in a lot of different academic curriculums. Um, but can you just briefly touch on, um, we'll get more into this into the second part of the podcast, but I was just wondering if you could touch briefly on some research and evidence-based practices that um, you saw, just kind of how, how OMA relates to OT. Um, you know, it's interesting, Alex, um, because uh, Ashlyn Cunningham, who's at Maryville University, and I are the only two OMA-trained facilitators who are OTs um, in the country, with the exception of the, the students that have gotten trained here. Um, so, the, so it's an evidence-based practice that has won a number of awards in, um, in Ohio, but those haven't been in the area of OT. Those have been as, as providing extremely valuable services for um, clients with dementia. So uh, the Scripps Institute focuses on gerontology. So um, those have been predominantly gerontologists that have done that. Um, and you know, since you were one of the volunteers this past spring, that while I was doing the Circa program, that I, um, I knew I wanted to do a project that was related to OMA. Um, and so, and it had to be an action-based research project. So I, I started out by diving into the literature on um, on OMA, but also on um, on art programs and working with people with dementia. And and what I discovered was that people with dementia were capable of demonstrating volition and um, and um, engaging in activity, but the critical factor was a having a social conduit, having a social partner to initiate the process. Because of mentation limitations, cognitive limitations that they have, they can't initiate. So they need someone else to initiate for them. And, um, and that goes for continuing as well. Um, know as a process skill with being able to to continue but when they have a partner a social partner there to help them engage they can engage and they can experience pleasure and um and enjoyment in the process so this is true both of music and of art with people with dementia so um, so I actually got into OMA as a, re as a result of the art because I was attracted to the art with my art background. But when I got into the research, what I realized was what made OMA a powerful program um, was in part the art, uh, as, but it was strongly because of the interprofessional, I mean, excuse me, um, intergenerational relationships of the volunteers with the artists 
Um, so it works very closely with paired volunteers and and ideally those volunteers are with the same artist for an entire semester so for all you know 10 11 weeks or whatever um, we did it a little differently for class because I needed to get so many students through the program um, that that they were only there for three weeks but I had a brainstorm this morning when I woke up and I've already um, written to um, to Carol Ivey, to the chair about this. And my idea is um, if we could get iPads uh, through the department and supply them to St. Francis Home, Sarah, the activities director who's an OMA facilitator there, could possibly create opportunities for students to pair up with eight um, residents in the fall and in the spring. It doesn't have to be the same eight residents both times, but, the, but what we would do is take the 48 students in the program, divide them in half, so 24 would uh, do it in the, fall, in the Friday afternoons in the fall and the other 24 would do it Friday afternoons in the spring. And they would become um, partners, social partners through the iPad. So, um, you know, to be able to do it remotely um, but to connect socially and to be able to watch and see everything that's going on and to connect with them. So it's, it's, I, I don't think that we're going to be able to go into an assisted living facility until such time as there's a, 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 vac, a vaccine. So it means that we won't have opportunities for, you know, possibly up to a year from now. So the idea of trying to offer OMA virtually is just, a new brainstorm of mine. <laughs> yeah. So you're getting it hot off the presses. It's you know it's only a few hours old at this point. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I haven't talked with Lika about it yet, but I know she'd be all over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, we kind of have to adapt here and just use the technology that we have. But I think that's a really a really cool idea for still you know, um, having that opportunity to work with older adults and, you know, senior um, living mm -hmm. facilities because of the current situation and, and how we probably won't be able to have that opportunity for quite some time until this this vaccine is, you know, developed hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Stay posted because it's, a, it's changing. Yeah. Okay, yes, exactly. Um, Alex, I just wanted to ask you about um, your experience with the program and um, like how has it changed your views uh, with art and occupational therapy and also the dementia population? Well, I, I did not have that much um, experience working with older populations. I have a lot of experience working with, with pediatrics, but not so much with older adults. And it was an interesting experience um, for me to go into that situation because it is a very intimate um, relationship that you're developing with somebody um, and you're spending a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with them over the course of a couple weeks and, and there's a lot of downtime where you have to fill that that um, that time with some conversation and you know you, you don't really you're not really told exactly what the person's diagnosis is and, and to some extent I think that's good because you're almost instead of just going in with a mindset hey you're gonna work with this person you kind of have an open an open slate um, and mm -hmm. I kind of 
I kind of learned to be a little bit more flexible and sit back and relax and just kind of see where the converse, conversation went, but also to be mindful of, you know, utilizing open-ended questions and, um, you know, to, to work on that relationship because that, that social interaction that you're giving that person is really worthwhile, I think, on, on both sides of the coin there. Um, but, you know, Diane mentioned the intergenerational aspect of it and, you know, the, the person may not necessarily remember you from time to time, but, you know, that positive aspect that you're giving them and, you know, the good warmth and love that you're, that you're sharing with that person is really something that is important to them. And, you know, I think that we, it is very important for our culture and for, for uh, people to learn from, you know, past generations and, you know, have that relationship with your parents or your grandparents or, you know, strangers in the community so that you, that you actually learn from, from the past and, and we can all move forward and, and kind of move in a positive direction. Yes, that makes so much sense. Uh, thank you for sharing your, your thoughts and experience. Yeah, definitely. So I guess um, at this point, um, we have part two of the episode that is coming up, um, as I mentioned previously, with Aaron Oakley and Cindy Pollan. And we're going to get a little bit more in detail and go in depth in terms of what it's like for a grad three to do their capstone on a project and work with a company um, for Art for the Journey. And um, Cindy's going to be sharing her, um, her side of uh, the experience from being a director and, and um, also talking about um, how OT fits into their various many programs as well. So, um, David, did you have any questions that you wanted to still ask, or did you want to talk about maybe your experience with art, um, with your, your program? Oh, well, I, I wanted to um, ask about uh, the new changes, you know, since we are experiencing the COVID uh, times right now. But Diane touched on it a little bit with her idea this morning about introducing iPads and using that and using a digital format or like a telehealth format instead to try to reach the patient, which uh, I thought was really amazing. And um, my other question was, um, how can we as future OT uh, practitioner gear um, the focus of OT towards mental health? Uh, you know, mental health is um, where we came from. It's where we, OT was founded in mental health with um, even moral treatment and uh, that coming over to this country. But um, it, was, it was really in the institutions and the asylums that OTs really began their work. And then eventually we're also in tuberculosis asylums and, and um, in polio. Um, this was all before, you know, World War One and World War Two changed things. But our, um, we know that occupations affect our physical bodies and our mental, emotional, social being. Our, um, and so to treat holistically, we have to treat the body and the mind. They're not, they're not separate. They're one, they're unified, and so that, that mind-body connection has to be treated. I, I have a, a personal bias that I absolutely love working with clientele in the mental health 
community. I've worked in the area of addiction. I've worked in the area of corrections and um, and in uh, psychiatric facilities. Um, and OTs have so much to offer this population. Um, I think we're seeing a resurgence now. Um, AOTA has worked very hard to have OT recognized by SAMHSA as one of the, you know, um, professions that provides mental health services. Um, here in this state, we've worked to have OT identified as a, a qualified mental health provider. Um, so getting that recognition that we provide mental health um, and then getting people to practice in that area. But I see more and more students that are showing an interest. In the, and we just had two days in the last couple of days of the introduction course where different practice settings were discussed. And um, I had many more people interested in community mental health and, um, and even in inpatient mental health than um, I remember having in a long time. So I hope... Um, I hope that we've kindled some some ideas and people will continue in that area. Even in the capstones, there's more interest in trauma-informed care, working with children, um, both in specialty settings and also in school systems and that kind of thing. So I think trauma-informed care is going to inform OT practice as well. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, I think, you know, as a holistic profession, we definitely have to consider, you know, the person, the environment, and the occupation, and how all that is very, very much mm -hmm. interconnected, so. That's, so. What it, that's what drew me, oh, that's, I mean, that's what drew me into the profession of OT, just having, uh, you know, the whole mind, body, and soul, you know, not looking at a person as just a patient or a number, you know, looking at them as actual someone that you want to help heal and have a better quality of life. Yeah, I completely mm -hmm. agree. So, David, what has your experience been with art and OT? Okay, so first, I mean, art, I'm not, I've never been a really big fan of art since I was a kid, maybe because I wasn't, you know, too great at it. I was really great at doing stick figures. But whenever I uh, got into the OT program and um, we talked about art, I was a little skeptical. I was like, okay, I know that the profession of OT, you know, blossomed out of the reform movement of the late 19th and early 20th century, and that was especially with the arts and crafts and moral treatment movement. And so I know that it's deeply rooted in arts and crafts, so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to you know, keep an open mind, as all OT should. And so did arts and crafts, and I took the class, and um, it was really amazing. First, you know, I thought, oh, I don't want to do it, I don't want to paint, I don't want to make uh, bread houses, I don't want to leather or just do anything like that and but reading about it and how it helps people and seeing it like firsthand and how it helps people then our teachers made us do the crafts and things in class and some of the now i really like lettering so you know surprisingly which is amazing it was really calming and therapeutic and all i was doing is it was just a moment that clicked and i was just like yes it makes sense i see how this can be therapeutic because it's not only, you know, just about doing art and moving that. Um, art can do so much and has the potential for so much therapeutic applications like motor control and sensory and like, perceptual stimulation, especially with people with cognitive challenges and also 
when you're done with the art and it looks pretty and amazing and it enhances your self-esteem, and that also helps us fuel our, our, you know, our therapy. And I just thought, whenever you brought this to me and you said, let's do OMA, I was just like, oh, perfect. I've just recently fallen in love with art and therapy, and this is just perfect for us to do this. So thank you so much for loving us. And thank you so well, much. Well, good, Diane, David. Maybe you'll too. want to get trained as an OMA facilitator one of these days. Yes, I would love to. Yes, yeah. I just have to just waiting, waiting to graduate, you know, waiting to finish my rotation, and then I will be sending you an email soon, hopefully. <laughs> that would be great. Yes. Yeah. I think arts and crafts, like you said, goes hand-in-hand hand with occupational therapy, and there's so many activities that you can use through that, that mode to, to help people grow and, and work on um, different, different skills. Um, so we'll definitely, um, you know, if you want to ever talk arts and crafts or anything OT, we'll leave our, our contact information in the show notes here, and uh, we'll leave some information about the OMA program so you can look it up if you do want to follow up on any of this information. Um, we will be um, having a part two episode, so please keep a lookout for that. And in order to wrap things up here, um, we just wanted to know, Diane, if you had any inspirational quotes or stories that you would like to share with the listeners that may be considering a career in occupational therapy. Well, um, you know this very well, Alex. My, my favorite quote has been and will always continue to be Mary Riley's famous quote from her 1962 Elmer Clark's lecture that man, through the use of his hands, is energized by his mind and will as a capacity to influence his own health. I believe strongly that um, this, is, this is to be true. Mary was so far ahead of her time, but her ideas influenced Gary's ideas and the model of human occupation. And, um, and, I, and I learned just how incredible the human uh, is that our ability to be able to uh, look and see with binocular vision, bend over and pick up and use opposable mm-hmm. thumbs to pick up and do fine motor kind of examination and um, through our incredible arms and hands and 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 wrists that the the kind of manipulation and in hand manipulation that we have i'm just fascinated by the hands i'm fascinated by um the human will to be able to generate things so we didn't stay at people that just made pots we decorated them and we decorated them with great detail so we have a desire for the aesthetic we love the arts, and um, and we're capable of being able to do it. And I think it is something that is such an, a part of who we are that when we get the chance to be able to explore creative opportunities, we really um, satisfy something that's very deep inside all of us. And um, And so I love being able to help people discover that. All right. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, that is a, a great quote. Well, I just want to thank you again, Diane, for your time with speaking with us today. Uh, it's been very informative and very inspirational. Um, so I want to thank the listeners as well and David for your help on this podcast. So uh, thank you very much, Diane. Good luck to both of you all in your podcasting. <laughs> sounds, yes, like, yes. sounds like fun. I hope right. you enjoy your your partnership and 
and going forward and making more podcasts. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!